Alistair Bridge, and you're listening to Unlocked World, the podcast where I escape the confines of my enforced lockdown by delving back into my extensive archive of travel writings. Now first up this week, an apology. Not only was I locked in my home last week, but I was also locked out of my own podcast. I had handed over production control of my podcast to a young man that I met via a local forum, who it turns out was something of a joker, and if I may be so bold, a right little shit. Unbeknownst to me, the episode which was released last week was something of an obscene transmission. So for that, I am deeply sorry. Uh, It will not happen again, and I will be vetting any future collaborators a little more rigorously. I have emailed the father of the young man in question, but so far it has been radio silence. Now, with that out of the way, on to this week's episode, in which I revisit a piece written in 2012 about a very troubling trip that I took to the town of Pripyat. So let us begin our journey into the unlocked world. Chernobyl. For someone of my age, the name carries a weight far greater than a word which, to the Western ear certainly, sounds like a collection of fairly silly syllables. It casts a pall over the discourse around energy production, industrial safety and the like, much as it cast a very real nuclear pall over much of Europe on that fateful day and the ensuing fateful weeks, months and years. The word certainly still has the power to dominate conversation when I mention in my local one Tuesday afternoon in May that I intend to visit the city which lies closest to the centre of the exclusion zone, Pripyat. One of the other regular drinkers, let's call him Tom, says that I'll need a Geiger counter if I intend to head into the exclusion zone. And that, fortuitously, he just so happens to have one that he is willing to part with, for the trifling sum of £700, an amount which, I am now aware, is far above market value. Being by no means an expert in radiation or the preparations to be made for encountering it, I agree, and the next day I am leaving his house with my own very heavy Geiger counter and my own very light wallet. I had assumed that the piece of equipment I would be picking up would be a fairly compact, modern piece of kit, perhaps even handheld. However, what I come away with is around the size of a typewriter, and weighs a ton, and I am forced to stop into the pub on the way home to regather my strength. By June, the arrangements for my trip are made, and I am being driven to Gatwick Airport in order to catch my flight to Kiev, or Kyiv, as the Ukrainians would have it. As we drive towards the airport, I reflect on the special significance that this trip has for me. 
Much as the Soviet leaders and the directors of the Chernobyl power plant were unfairly maligned for the perceived mismanagement of the crisis, my father too fell victim to a witch hunt on account of an unfortunate incident at the Industrial Chemicals Company of which he was CEO in the 80s. Those of my readers who were alive at the time, which, given that this is due for publication in the Telegraph, I would reckon to be all of you, may remember the tale of an unfortunate man named William Burgess, a man who lost several legs in a freak accident whilst working as an administrator at Geddes and Bayford Chemicals. The pitchforks came out for my father based around some wafer-thin allegations about missed routine safety checks and a culture of fear at the plant. William, or Whiskey Burgess, as he was known in the press after the company disclosed information about his struggles with alcohol, came after Dad with some opportunistic lawyers in tow, greedy for the kind of settlement that would have him swimming in drink for life. My father's good name was dragged through the mud, and the ins and outs of Burgess's sordid little life were laid out in the papers for months. The whole wretched affair necessitated a temporary relocation to our holiday home in the Swiss Alps, during which my mother and father's relationship soured, and I became very bored indeed. Eventually, after a protracted trial by public opinion and actual trial in court, my father was exonerated. I remember the judge's closing remarks, expressing his deepest sympathies to my father for the many months of his life ruined by the experience and the increased heating costs which our relocation to Switzerland entailed. All I'll say is thank heavens for the Masons. I am jolted from my reverie by our arrival at Gatwick, and one last idle check of my flight details reveals that I am due to fly from Heathrow, and that I am required to have a rather sheepish conversation with my driver. I sense that the man is possessed of both an extreme frustration and delight as my fare grows exponentially before his eyes. Traffic outside Heathrow means that we arrive some three minutes before my flight is due to depart, and I have already mentally made peace with the purchase of another ticket. After lugging my Geiger counter and travel bag around the airport for some time, I am able to find a desk from which to purchase my replacement ticket. For two days' time, for £600. I check into the airport Hilton, and by 2pm have dropped my bags in my room and settled myself into the lounge bar. Performing some basic arithmetic in my head, I conclude that my journey has already exceeded the budget which I had set, but surmise, correctly, as I am a man of some means, that a little more can't hurt and order a magnum of champagne. Making conversation, my server asks where I'm going. Kiev, I tell him. He asks whether I'm heading to Ukraine to watch the Euros. Being a man not particularly fond of football, I am perplexed. What on earth are you talking about? I ask. The Euros. Euro 2012. The European football tournament, which is taking place jointly across Ukraine and Poland this month. I am blank-faced for a moment. It had been my intention for this journey to be a handy excuse to avoid some of the congestion around London as the Olympics will mean that every Thomas, Dieter and Henri descends upon our fair city to watch some drugged-up cheats pound around a track for God knows how long. However, I am now forced to question my timings. After a little further research, it becomes clear that my dates were somewhat off and I will be arriving in Kiev for the start of Europe's biggest football tournament and I'm scheduled to return to London for the start of the Olympics. Shit. Or lino, as the Ukrainians would have it. Not a football fan, then? asks my server. By way of answer, I merely ask where my champagne is, and consider reporting him to his manager for impudence. 
As the day wears on and my champagne dwindles away, a second bottle is ordered. By the time this bottle is at an end, the bar has started to fill up with football fans, honking vapidly about the unique atmosphere of camaraderie at international tournaments. I ask jokingly whether they have their Esperanto phrasebooks with them. Either they do not hear me, or they choose to ignore me. I begin to consider that, with a day and a half until my flight, it would have been perfectly possible to take a car back to Blackheath and return to the airport a little closer to the time. But that ship has sailed, as have I, back to the bar for a third bottle of champagne, which I take to my room. Flicking idly through the television channels available to me, I stumble across a rap video, featuring all sorts of outrageous behaviour with large wads of dollar bills and expensive liquor. In my slightly inebriated state, I get a thought stuck in my head, which refuses to go away over the course of the next 20 minutes of swigging from my champagne bottle. I order a fourth bottle and decide to indulge my flight of fancy. Nude in the bathtub, attempting to bathe in my champagne, it becomes abundantly clear, even to my adult self, that there is insufficient champagne in a standard-sized bottle to create anything more than an extremely shallow puddle in the base of the bathtub. Sufficiently chastened, I shower the champagne off myself and go to sleep. As I lie drifting off, I see out the window the blinking lights of the aeroplanes taking off and landing. Their frequency amazes me. Who would have thought that departures from the airport would be so regular? So many people taking journeys to so many places. All different kinds of people, with different kinds of lives, travelling all over the world to interact with others, who in turn have their own lives, connections spreading ever outwards across the whole of this precious globe. I was struck by the vast panoply of human life, all distinct and yet all inseparably connected. Perhaps my cynicism with regards to the great coming together of international sporting occasions was misplaced. In the morning it becomes clear that I had not made it to bed and in fact had fallen asleep on the floor. The lights which I had seen were those of a Wi-Fi router. Over the course of the day I busy myself with sourcing ibuprofen and keeping my eyes closed. When it is once again bearable to open my eyes, I am able to cast a brief glance over an email from Constantin, a local guide from near the exclusion zone whose services I will use to smuggle me inside. I have neglected to tell him about my flight issues, and he wishes to know where I am and when he will get paid. I forward my updated itinerary, reassure him that he will receive the remainder of his fee upon our meeting, and roll over in bed. The next day I feel reinvigorated, Clearly, the near full day in bed has done me the world of good, and I almost do not notice the weight of my Geiger counter as I ferry my bags to check-in. My passage through security is smooth, excepting the discovery of an errant whisky miniature in my hand luggage, which I am able to neck and dispose of before any further trouble is caused. And I am soon reclining in the executive lounge, idly daydreaming about the streets of Pripyat, reclaimed by nature, patrolled by the plucky packs of dogs who occupy this liminal space between the urban and the wild. These mental vistas are so diverting that I almost miss boarding. At passport control, the lady behind the desk looks from my passport to me and back again four, maybe five times. It's been a rough couple of years, I joke. She merely says, yes, and I must confess to being a little perturbed. However, soon enough, my bruised ego and I are in our seat. From Heathrow, we will fly into Frankfurt, 
where, unfortunately due to the nature of my rebooking, I will have an 11-hour wait in the airport before flying to Kiev-Borispol Airport. From there I take a train into Kiev and then to Chernihiv, where I catch a train on the branch line towards Ovruch. A guard, a friend of Konstantin, has been bribed, at no small expense, to let me off at the unused station at Vilcha, which is where I am to meet Konstantin. Some may balk at the idea of a bribe, but as my father was so quick to impress upon me in my youth, and particularly during the Whiskey Burgess days, it is the way of the world sometimes. And if that is what is needed to get things done, who am I to argue? I object to the sum and advance payment, sure, but not the principle. As the preparations for taxiing are completed, and my mind begins to turn to my first in-flight beverage, there is suddenly a little bit of a muddle amongst the cabin crew, and a tension in the air. Mr Bridge? Someone asks. I turn to see a member of airport security in the aisle, who asks me to come with him. I make some vague protestations about my hand luggage, and am permitted to retrieve it and pass it into the stewardship of another waiting member of security, as I am led away to a small office. I am provided with a disposable cup of water, a far cry from the G&T which I had been dreaming of, and sit silently, a little nervously, as my interlocutor fills out some paperwork. After some time he begins his questioning, and it becomes clear that my Geiger counter has caused no small amount of anxiety and baggage check. I inform him what it is, the nature of it, and my intended purpose with the piece. I ask him whether he is unfamiliar with that sort of equipment. He notes that he is fully cognizant of a Geiger counter and its intended purpose, and has indeed seen a couple in his time working security in airports. He has, however, never seen one of a comparable size and antiquity to mine certainly not outside of the science museum. By this stage I am in something of a flutter, and begin to blather about Tom from the pub and my trip to Pripyat, omitting, of course, Costantin and the bribery of the train guard. I show the officer texts from Tom, relating to the pickup of the Geiger counter. He notes the price quoted, and refuses to believe that I would purchase what is clearly an ancient device for somewhere near double the price of a modern, far more compact and efficient model. I attempt to show him pictures of Tom, to demonstrate that he's just some chap I know from the pub, but the only picture that I am able to find from the pub's Facebook group is from the summer barbecue, at which Tom was dressed as Osama Bin Laden, who had recently been killed, and elect not to show this picture, as it could well hurt my case. It is clear by now that I have missed my second flight, and continuing my trip will entail the purchase of a third ticket, a further payment to Costantin, and the bribing of another train guard. To hell with it all! Keep the damn Geiger counter, I wish to go home! I shout, almost on the verge of tears. My interrogator says that it has already been destroyed in a controlled explosion. £700 up the spout. In the car home, I wince as I attempt to figure out how to file my eye-watering expenses, as the radio announces Robert Lewandowski's goal against Greece. So that was Pripyat. In the years since writing this piece, it has come to my attention that, at the time, it was already possible to take a bus tour of Pripyat from Kiev, and that Konstantin was defrauding me to the tune of £1,000. 
I attempted to recover this money through legal means, but was told that this would be borderline impossible. Oh, and uh, uh, before I forget, I had got into some legal trouble of my own for referring to William Burgess as whiskey. Unfortunately, uh, I've already recorded the episode and I'm not that much of a dab hand in the edit suite, so I hope that this postscript will be sufficient and I am deeply sorry to the Burgess family for any distress caused. Uh, please don't forget to like and subscribe and give us a review on your chosen podcast app. It really does help to boost those numbers. If you wish to get in touch with me, perhaps to request a piece from the archives to feature on the show, you can contact me at alistabridgeworld at gmail.com. Until next time, goodbye. This is a complimentary piece of music from Free Sound Effects Library. For the full track, please go to Unlocked World was an Alistair Bridge production. Uh, if anyone has any links to uh, wine merchants in the Blackheath area, please do let me know, as my usual supplier is starting to uh, let me down. This is a complimentary piece of music from Free Sound Effects Library. For the full track, please go to freesoundeffectslibrary.com.